come to worship, be satisfied. And uh, we're going to see that worship is a response to the revelation of our God. And so we want to worship today in response to, to that revelation and, and uh, uh, teach on worship over the next few weeks. And so we're going to do things a little differently. I pray that you'll be gracious. I know that we're, we're moving your cheese this morning. We're mo- messing up with your routine. But uh, um, hopefully, hopefully it'll be a blessing to respond to... Uh, uh, to worship in a, in a, in a biblical, biblical way. And so if you'll turn with me to John 4, as I said, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at worship. And today we want to answer the simple question, what is worship? And there's a, lots of ideas that, that are surfaced with regards to what worship is, what it's not. So I want us over the next few weeks to help us to understand rightly what, it is, what worship is from a biblical standpoint. I mean, if I ask you right now to define worship, to define biblical worship, how would you respond? What would come to mind? Where, where did you come up with that definition? Where did you get that definition of worship? What has influenced your definition of worship? And, and over the next few weeks, I want to, as best as I can, help us to understand Help us to get a clear picture of what biblical worship is. What it is, what it's not. The goal being that we would be better, uh, more informed worshipers of our great God. And to begin, as we unpack this, we're going to spend a few weeks in chapter 4, lots of John. There's lots of uh, uh, truths here and and really the the issue. And I want to read... John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, and we're going to specifically today look at a few verses. <clears throat> but look at what, look at what John, John says and recounts here. He's retelling a, a picture, a story of Jesus and his conversation with a Sumerian woman. That in and of itself is a big deal. Jews did not, and you'll see it in here, Jews did not hang out, didn't talk, didn't associate with Samaritans. And so this is a big deal. Starting in verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus began, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour. This is at the heat of the day, middle of the day, heat of the day. Twelve o'clock. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. 
But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you were a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This passage on the surface seemingly has nothing to do about worship. I, I don't think that woman was thinking about worship when, G, when she went to draw water from that well that morning. I don't think she had any int intentions, any understanding of what was about to happen. But Jesus cuts through the real issue and gets down to the real issue. We, we mask the issue with a lot of things. Our lives are full of things and, and, and stuff and activity. Oftentimes hiding the real issue. You say, well, what is the core issue here that Jesus addresses this woman? I, I think the core issue and the issue that we're going to look at over the next few weeks is satisfaction. Deep, heartfelt satisfaction. This, this lady had sought satisfaction in relationship after relationship after relationship. They all fell short. What she really needed was satisfaction in Jesus, not just men. And Jesus connects this to worship. The, 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 issue, the issue and the why behind that is because worship is related to to satisfaction. Please hear that. You're going to hear that word a lot over the next few weeks. Worship is related to satisfaction. Where do we find our true satisfaction? In our own lives, we come to well after well after well. We seek after well after well after well looking for satisfaction. But the wells of this world, they don't satisfy only God satisfies. And that is worship. Worship is looking to God alone. It is, it is attesting to God alone. It is adoring God alone as our true satisfaction. To the point that we don't look to these other things. We deny these other things. Why? Because in Christ we have found living water. In Christ we have found our satisfaction. And, and way more than simply the forgiveness of our sins. You'll, you'll see there, again, your main point today, and this is the word that I want us to walk away thinking about today, is satisfied. God has designed His creation 
to be totally satisfied in Him alone. And the proper response to being satisfied in God is to worship Him as He has revealed Himself through the Word. We will never be fully satisfied until we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ alone. We will never be able to rightly worship God until we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ alone. That, that's why we say here, we gather to worship, we scatter to evangelize. A non-believer, again, everything we do here has the, the, no relevance in a sense to a non-believer other than the fact that we're calling on them to be reconciled to their God. We are gathered here today to worship. A non-believer cannot worship God. They are alienated from God. They are enemies of God. We're here to worship. We're here to declare corporately that our satisfaction is in God alone. It's not in, it's not in all of the things that the world throws out there. Uh, it's not in stuff. It's not in money. It's not in relationships. It's not in status. It's not in jobs. None of those eternally satisfy. Jesus alone eternally satisfies. It's a satisfaction that is deeper, fuller, longer lasting than anything else in this world. And every single person in here, every single one of us, has got to deal with that question. In whom or in what am I going to be eternally satisfied? Where am I going to seek my satisfaction? Students, you could be looking for satisfaction in what others think about you and in what you wear or, or your grades or your abilities to play a certain sport. Or, or you know, when I was a kid, I, I was, my dad, we grew up big on cars. I, I was very, 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 I cared a lot about what car I drove. Clothes, socks, matching the shirt and this and that. Where, where do you look for Satisfaction. Where do you, parents, where do you look for your identity? Is it in your kids and their achievement? Is it, in your, is it in your title on your business card? Is it in your paycheck? Is it how many zeros are on your check? The battle is over satisfaction. And listen, we will worship, listen, we will worship that where we think we will find satisfaction. Why do people overwork? Because they believe that they will be satisfied in something that that work accomplishes. Why do we spend money on stuff? Because we believe that we will be satisfied if we get the right stuff. Why do we, why do we forsake our morals and our convictions and, and, and in, in activities involving relationships and do things that we know are contrary to the Word of God? Why? Because we believe that we will be satisfied if we do that. It's a lie. Jesus alone satisfies. And our worship flows out of that. We, again, we, will, we want to be loved, we want to be valued, we want to belong, we want to be cherished, and, and we search in the things of the world for all of those things. And listen, all of our lives, I, I would bet if we were honest, all of our lives bear the scars of searching for the things of the world to do for us what Jesus alone does. And we have the scars to prove that the things of the world don't truly satisfy. Just like this woman, you got to keep coming back to the well day after day after day after day. Why? Because it doesn't eternally satisfy. 
If it's closed, there will always be a new line. If it's cars, there will always be another make. If it's relationships, there will always be another relationship. If it's stuff, there will always be somebody that has more. If it's status, there will always be another level. They don't satisfy. This room is full of people, again, as I said, who are seeking satisfaction. Unfortunately, it's possible we as believers are seeking it in the wrong place. The right boy or the right girl, the right amount of money, the right clothes, the right status, the right accomplishment. Jesus alone truly satisfies. Look at verses 13 and 14, again, of John 4. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. You know, he's telling her, look, you can get, you can lower your bucket into this well. You can draw out some water. You're going to be back tomorrow. And guess what? You can draw your well in the, you can lower your bucket into the well tomorrow. You can draw out the water. You will be temporarily satisfied. But you know what? You're going to be back the next day. It's not that the things in this world don't satisfy. They temporarily satisfy. That's the problem. They don't eternally satisfy. And again, he said to her, you'll thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the satisfaction? You, this has always been the issue. You can go back to Jeremiah. He says, I have, I have two things against my people. They pursued other gods and they've dug for themselves their own cisterns, cisterns who do not hold water permanently. All of us want to be satisfied. We fill it with all kinds of things. But Jesus alone is, the, is eternal satisfaction. Water, he is water that lasts forever. And again, from this question, Jesus begins to speak to her about worship. Look at verse 16. Go call your husband and come here. Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. He's getting to where she's been looking for satisfaction. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He says, go call your husband. That seems cruel to ask a woman who's had five husbands and the man she's living with right now ain't her husband. Jesus knows this and he says, hey, go call your husband. But what is Jesus getting at? You're looking for love in all the wrong places. You're looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Your own life is a testimony to the fact that these things don't eternally satisfy. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. Where you've been fishing for satisfaction has left you empty. Time and time and time and time and time again. And guess what? You're back to the same place in the same well. Satisfaction is the issue. And Jesus says to her that I alone satisfy. Again, verse 14. Anyone who drinks of Jesus will be satisfied. Eternally satisfied. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. God has made a way through Christ for his sinful creation, a creation that has rebelled, 
a creation, a creation that is chosen to go in their own way, a creation that is chosen to live according to their own wisdom, a creation that has turned their backs on Him, a creation that has sought to use God for their own glory and not His. And in the midst of that rebellion, in the midst of all of that, God is pursuing, He's seeking that creation. And, and He offers forgiveness in the midst of that. That's the gospel. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while... We were yet sinners. He died for us. Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, He offered Jesus Christ as a satisfactory payment for the penalty of our sin. Pursued us. Made a way for us to be reconciled. Made a way for us to be eternally satisfied in Jesus Christ and to display to the world and eternal satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And you'll see it in your handout. The gospel reminds us that God desires to be our satisfaction because He alone satisfies and is thus worthy to be worshipped. How do you worship things? You, you pursue them. You spend your whole life earning money so you can get those things. How do you show that people, that relationships are, are what you're worshiping? You spend your whole life pursuing those. How do you show that clothes, that's what you buy? You pursue it. You're worshiping it. We pursue that which we believe will satisfy. It's worship. It's not so grotesque as in our minds as having a golden calf sitting at the front door of the house and we, we rub on it or we bow down to it. We're, 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 we're not that crude in our own minds. But our lives are full of false worship. And God has designed us to be eternally satisfied in Him alone. And worshiping and seeking and knowing and loving God alone demonstrates this satisfaction to the world. And that really is the essence of what it means to, to be a Christian. If you go over to John 6.35, look at what Jesus says. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. To be a Christian means to admit that you have sinned, to admit that you've gone your own way. You admit that all your pursuits on your own have come up empty, that sin has left you empty, that sin has left you separated from God, sin has left you condemned of God, worthy of the wrath of God, deserving death due to our sin because of the law of God. And in response to that acknowledgement, you look to Jesus alone and the work on the cross. You look to His death, His burial, and His resurrection. You look to the victory that He accomplished over the grave. You look at the satisfactory payment that He made as your substitute. You, you look to Jesus Christ for your declared, imputed, substitutionary righteousness apart from works, through faith alone. Thus you are reconciled to God as an adopted child. And in response to that, we worship God alone. That worship of God alone demonstrates that we are eternally satisfied in God alone. We rest in God alone. 
We, we, we are confident in, and we boast in knowing Him, and we boast that we are known to Him. As we saw in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, let not the rich man boast of his wealth, not, not the strong man boast of his strength, but let man boast in this, that he knows God, and that he's known by God. Believer, please grasp this about salvation. True biblical salvation. Salvation is not simply some prayer you get, some prayer you pray rather, so you get your get out of hell free card so that you can then go back and chase after the things of the world and then when you die, oh, you just flash this card. Oh, here's my, here's my get out of jail free card when I was eight. That's not salvation. That's not biblical salvation. We've made that out to be salvation. Satan has duped us, many of us, into believing that salvation. Salvation is not, you get, not praying a prayer so that you can live however you want to live, and when you die, you don't have to pay the consequences for that. That's not biblical salvation. Salvation is not simply the forgiveness of your sin, and then God just says, hey, I hope it works out for you, and you live a life of emptiness, chasing after the things of the world. Salvation is freedom from the penalty and the power of sin, but it is a satisfaction in knowing and being known by the God who has forgiven you, who crucified His Son for you. And thus you worship Him alone. You spend the rest of your life worshiping Him. You spend the rest of your life to His glory. We'll see that in a couple weeks in Romans 12. You spend the rest of your life enjoying being eternally satisfied in the One who has saved you. That's biblical Christianity. And that brings us to our definition that we'll work on for the rest of this study. And, and I, hope it, I hope it helps us. There's lots of definitions. We, we could have come up with, everybody has a definition. This is the one we're going to work with. And you see it on your handout. Worship is the proper response to encountering the truth of who God is, of who God has revealed Himself to be. It's the proper response. It's response to who God is. God has revealed Himself, and we are responding to that self-revelation in our worship. Worship is a response to God of rest and satisfaction and adoration. It is a response to God as He has revealed Himself in the Word. Worship is a right, proper response to having seen or enc and encountered our eternal satisfier. You see it on your handout. Worship is seeing God as our satisfaction and being eternally satisfied in God. We, we cannot worship what we don't, we cannot rightly worship anyway what we don't know. We cannot rightly worship what we don't know. And we won't rightly worship if we don't know Him and are not satisfied in Him. Certainly not when we're persecuted, as we saw in 1 Peter. Certainly not under any and all circumstances. And in worshiping, we are recognizing God and His awesomeness. We are proclaiming our complete satisfaction in Him alone. We're not in worship. Listen, we're not adding anything to God that He needs. We're not adding anything that He lacks when we worship. We're responding to who He is. Again, it's Psalm, we could go to a lot of places. Psalm 29, verse 2. 
or starting in verse 1, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, worship the Lord in holy array. Do you see what you're doing when you're worshiping? You're acknowledging Him as your eternal satisfier. You're recognizing His worth. You're recognizing His awesomeness. Psalm, Psalm 95, verse 6. The psalmist writes, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our Maker. For we are His God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His land. You see it on your handout. In worship, we're responding to what God has revealed about Himself and the truth that God is unique, unique from all other gods. And you see this throughout the Bible. That, God, that the God of this Bible is unique, and we'll look at that in a minute. That, that we are totally satisfied in Him. And, and really, one of the purposes behind everything God has done, even the gospel, is to show that He's unique. That if we're going to boast, we can only boast in Him. His ways are not our ways, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. He is unique. He's unique from us. He's unique from all other false gods. And thus, we are totally satisfied. Worship is being totally satisfied in Him. You see it on your handout. Worship is adoration and honor directed at God alone for who He is, what He will do, and what, what we have found in Him alone. John, John Piper, uh, and this, this is really the foundation of his ministry, Desiring God, but he says that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified when His people are most satisfied in Him alone. That we would see Him as the all-sufficient one. That we would not look to anything else for, for our needs, for our affection, none of that. That we would be totally satisfied. Again, that's really the picture of, of marriage, why God has used marriage to be a picture. Listen, in marriage, you choose one man, you cho and if you're, if, you're a, if you're a girl, and if you're a guy, you choose one woman. To be totally satisfied in the rest of your life. You forsake all others. That's the picture. That's worship, being eternally satisfied. And there are many, many passages that we could look at. I would encourage you to meditate on Isaiah chapter 40. The greatness of God, and, and, and listen, to, listen to, I'm just going to read some of what Isaiah 40 says about the greatness. The grass withers, verse 8, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. He goes on to say, behold, verse 10, the Lord, will, your, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ooze. Verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or, who has, or, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop of a bucket, 
and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, for the beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. And here's the conclusion that Isaiah comes to. Verse 18, talking about the uniqueness of God. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? God is unique, and you see it on your handout. God is unique and worthy of worship because of who he is. God is unique and worthy of worship because of what he's done. And God is unique and worthy of worship because of what he's promised to do. And twice in this section in chapter 40 of Isaiah, Isaiah comes to the same conclusion. Look in verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? There is none. To whom would you compare God? Nobody. To whom would be his equal? Nobody. And we see this point Isaiah making is making clearly in, in Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 4. L listen, especially verse 4, but listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 64, starting in verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. And then listen to this. From the days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. The, the, the uniqueness of, of the God of this Bible, the one true God, and you see it on hand now, the God of the Bible is a God who acts for those who wait for Him. We can wait for God because we are totally satisfied in Him because He has promised to act on our behalf. God's uniqueness is in the fact that He works for those who are willing to trust Him, to look to Him, to give Him the credit and the glory, to allow them to work on their behalf. Every other God says this, prove yourself, work for me, uh, I'll only bless you if you bless me first. They demand performance. Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, Hinduism, all of them demand performance. And yet there's a God here that says, you wait for me and allow me to work for you first. Totally unique. Again, Matthew 20, 28. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God performs on behalf of those who look to him. Namely, to save. And, and Isaiah contrasts this. He, in Isaiah 64, he's contrasting the one true God of the Bible to, their, to the idols. And li listen to what he says in, verse, in chapter 46. Baal has stooped down, Nebo stoops over, their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. Those are false gods. The things that, listen, the things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over, they have bowed down together, they could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. 
Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born of me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same, and even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it and will carry you and will bear you and I will deliver you. Do you see the contrast between the God of this Bible and the false gods? The false gods had to be carried. They had to be served. And yet the contrast is, here's the God, one true God of the Bible who carries you, who serves you, who bears your burdens. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine 29, when he says, Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my burden is, is light. He says, and do this and you will find what? You will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Uh, again, the God of the Bible, the one true God, comes to broken, needy people and offers to work on their behalf, offers to give them rest, offers to serve them offers to forgive them, to take their lives and live through them. Isaiah 30, verse 18, it says, it says God exalts. Isaiah 30, 18, God exalts to show you mercy. Think about that. He is utterly unique. But especially in the fact that He has condescended Himself to take on flesh to die. To pay the sin penalty that you and I deserve to pay. And before you go too far with this and think that I'm saying, oh, that means we don't have to do anything. No. 1 Peter 4.10, all the rest of the Bible say otherwise. Each of you should use your gifts to serve others, faithfully ministering God's grace in its various forms. Romans 12.1, we're going to deal with that. But the one who is providing the gifts, the one who is providing the strength in which you serve is who? It's God himself. God in his mercy has given you the strength. In his mercy he's given you the gifts. Again, he's the one behind the serving and the empowering that you and I do. All credit goes to him. And that's worship. You see it there. In worship, we are celebrating God and his work, not ours. We're saying that we are completely satisfied in God alone. We are completely satisfied in your work. And thus we can wait. Thus we can worship. We keep trusting, we keep looking to God alone. I mean, none of this. We didn't, we didn't work to create the world. We didn't work to give ourselves eyes to behold God's creation, ears to hear His word. We didn't make the sun at the right distance from the earth. We didn't make oxygen levels perfect. We didn't put the moon's gravitational pull. Look, who did that? God did that. Everything about our lives that we need most had nothing to do with our doing. It was achieved by God. Performed by God. And you see it on your handout there. Worship is waiting in and knowing and responding to who God has revealed himself to be by being totally satisfied in God. I mean, even today, baptism. Baptism is a picture that you are totally satisfied in the work of God. In his death, burial, and resurrection, that you're not performing to earn your way to God. Jesus did that. And, and it's, 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 there, there's, we've got to know the word. That's why in Ephesians 5.18, that's why Colossians 3.16 talk about the word of God richly dwelling in you. We must know this God so that we can rightly respond to him. 
When we sing, listen, when we sing, if, there's, if those words have to go back and attach themselves to something, namely the word, but something in our lives to prompt the worship, if there's nothing that they can attach themselves to, if it's, you might as well be singing something you have no idea about. You see the point? The words in these songs you're about to sing, are the reason why they have substance is because they're built on the word of God. They're built on a God who has revealed himself. And if we don't know that, then we're just singing songs. That's not worship. And I, and I thought about that. How do I illustrate this? And I, I hope this works. I, I ran it by a couple people. They said it made sense, but who knows? If, if, if I invited you to go bowling, if I said, hey, when we're done here today, we're going to go bowling, many, many of you could take it or leave it. You might go, you might not go. You, you could even go and go through the motions just because you're like the pastor asked, if I don't go, he's going to get offended. He's going to be where. You could go and go through the motions. But your mind, the whole time you're bowling, your mind could be on other things. Your mind could be on what's the Buccaneer score. Your mind could be on a million different things. I wish I wasn't here. I got to do this. I've got to do that. I could be doing this. Why? Because the act of bowling. And being in a bowling alley means little to you. You'd, maybe you didn't do it as a kid. Maybe that was your first time. Maybe you had a bad experience. But listen, for me, going bowling wells up. A, and it just so happened that my dad was here this morning. And so this he'll, he'll, he, he can verify. This isn't pastor speak, like I'm not making stuff up. Just for making a good illustration. Going bowling wells up a ton of memories for me, specifically with my dad. Every Thursday evening for many years, my dad bowled in the league with some of his co-workers, and he would let me go. And every Thursday evening, we would go to Taco Bell, we would get a soft taco supreme, we would get a big beef burrito supreme, we would get cinnamon sticks, and we would get a Pepsi. And we'd share that together, and then we'd go bowling. Now, this is back in the day, and they would let me keep score. It wasn't like he put me off in the back. It wasn't like he said, here's, 25, here's some money, go play the video games. I sat in the midst of them, I sat with them, and I kept score. This is back in the day where you had to write out the score, the light was shining on the clear thing, you messed it up, and everybody saw it. It's a big deal. It was a big deal for me to get to go bowling with my dad, but for them to trust me to keep their score. And eventually I began bowling on Saturdays, and he would always go. He coached me. He helped me. My point is this. Bowling is so much more than just bowling for me. You mentioned bowling. You take me bowling, it takes me back to my childhood. It takes me back to memories of, of longing for my own bowling ball and being in Ohio and getting a Columbia Yellow Dot 300 and bowling with my dad. Thursdays, Saturdays. Listen, for some of you, it might be if I mentioned playing catch with your dad. 
It might mean, it might be a basketball and shooting hoops with your dad. It might be a TV show or a movie that you'd give anything if you could watch that show one more time with your mom or your dad. But the very mention of it hearkens your mind back to something else, namely a person. It's not about the event. It's a person that's attached to it. And the activity is fueled by truth, and it it comes with emotions, it comes with memories, it comes with something so much deeper than just the activity. Our worship is fueled by truth, it's fueled by knowledge of who God is, it's fueled by walking with Him every single day. And if we haven't done that, and then we come in here on Sunday and try to conjure up an enjoyment for worship, it falls flat. Lyrics become so much more than just lyrics when we understand the God behind the lyrics, when we understand that they're the word behind the lyrics. When we sing these lyrics, your minds ought to be harking back to specific verses. And those verses tell about the God that we have committed our lives to. And if we don't know the word, if the word of God isn't richly dwelling in us, if lyrics don't take us back to Bible verses, if they don't take us back to times in our lives when we've seen and have personally experienced what we're singing about with God, our worship is flat. And we walk out of here and say, well, that wasn't very good. Daniel did a terrible job. Listen, he and I might do a terrible job. That's way not beyond possible. But it might be that we've done a terrible job all week of walking with God and worshiping God, and then we've come in here on Sunday and expect to just conjure up this enjoyment for a God that we've basically ignored since last Sunday. These songs are to take us back to the Word, take us back to a God who has given His life for us. Who has, who has committed daily to shower grace and lavish grace upon us in a God that we're completely satisfied in. Songs are simply, these songs are simply reminders of who God is. And, and worship, we'll see it, it goes way beyond songs, but I'm just mentioning that now. They, they have no weight, those songs have no weight except the Word and the God to whom they point to. That's where the weight comes from. Bowling, for many of you, has no weight because you didn't grow up doing it. You have no memories attached to it. It doesn't hark you. For me, it's much different. And I hope that illustration made sense. You, you see it on your handout. The number one impact on our worship is knowing God is revealed in the Word. It's about the Word richly dwelling in you. Maybe that's why some of us have a hard time worshiping because we don't really know the God of the Word. Maybe we don't really enjoy, if we were honest, we don't really enjoy knowing and being known by that God. But it's easier to blame a song. It's easier to blame a guitarist. It's easier to blame that the, 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 the drums were too loud. The, the beat was too fast. And, and again, that, I'm not saying style doesn't matter. I'm saying that's not the core thing. Listen, I can walk into any, I can walk, I can go to the nastiest bowling alley you can think of. And listen to me, you know where my mind goes back to? It goes back to Seminole Bowl on Tennessee Street. It goes back to Thursdays with my dad. 
It goes back to Saturdays, and, and there are three, three people come to my mind. I bowled on a four-person team for a long time. Harley Huggins, this, listen to these names. Harley Huggins, Demetrius Hargrave, Sonvarian Knight. Be the nastiest bowling alley. You can look at it. When I go in there, my mind goes back to my dad. My mind goes back to Harley. My mind goes back to Sonveria. My mind goes back to Demetrius. Why? Because there's a relationship. It's more than just bowling. Worship is responding to who God has revealed himself to be. It's responding to what he's promised to do, what he's already done. There's got to be a relationship there, walking with God by faith throughout the week. More than just, again, coming in here and picking up a conversation that we ended last Sunday. That's not worship. What we do here on Sunday mornings is a culmination of hopefully what we've been doing all week. All week. And you see it there on your handout. The, 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 the main thing is the knowledge of God. A puny God, you worship a puny God, you're going to have puny worship. Puny God equals puny worship. Our lives ought to be marked with memories, just like in the Old Testament, whenever God would reveal himself, whether it's Genesis 22 and God providing a sacrifice, God, Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain and he's going to sacrifice him and God provides a ram in the thicket. You know what Abraham did? He built an altar. And you know what he did? He named that place, the Lord will provide. What do you think harkened back to Abraham's mind every time he heard the Lord will provide? What do you think hearkened through Abraham's mind every time he saw that mountain? What do you think hearkened back to Abraham's mind every time he looked at his son? The Lord will provide. In Exodus 17, God and his people defeat Amalek, and, and Abraham builds an altar to remind him, to remind Israel what the Lord had done. And many of the descriptions we have of God come from those altars that were built to forever remind why do we take the lord's supper every month to remind ourselves to remind ourselves to prompt worship songs and styles and all that simply bring these memories to our life back to life our minds are harking back to god and his word don't don't mistake the quality of a song or the style of a song or or just emotion with worship. There's a lot of pretty songs out there that come out on the radio and they have zero substance behind them. The substance is the word. The substance is the acti- is the God behind the song. It's not just about we ought to listen. Daniel and his team ought to do songs well, but it's not primarily about doing the song well. It's about glorifying the God behind the song. It's about hearkening our minds to, to the God who has redeemed us and who has, who has adopted us. And that makes all of life about worship. You sit on your hand out, everything in life can prompt us to worship God by reminding us of who He is and what He's done. That we too would say what he said, Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, 18 and Isaiah 25, to whom then will you liken God? The answer is none. 
And when you're sharing that God with your neighbors, when you're sharing that God with your coworkers, that's a whole different sharing. When you're living out that God, worship, you see it, is a rhythm of revelation and response to that revelation. All of life. We're responding to who we know God to be based on His revelation. And I pray as, as Daniel's team comes up, and leads us in worship. Corey, I think around 10.30 is supposed to bring the kids back over here. I pray that, that we will, our minds will be fixated on God alone. I pray that we'll have a clear, right vision of God alone. I pray that we will be as Isaiah 6, that we will see a picture of God high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that we will be able to respond to God alone.